0: The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to I'm Ready for My Close-Up on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's weekly show about the world of film, TV, and moving images. I say weekly, but in fact today's episode is a special one-off programme which has been kindly inserted into the schedule during Resonance's August programme, because today I'm proud to have renowned American film director Spike Lee as my guest. Spike's filmography as a director has included memorable titles such as She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, as well as more recent forays into thriller making such as Inside Man and the forthcoming remake of Pak Chanuk's Old Boy. The reason we're talking today, however, is that the director has recently launched a Kickstarter campaign to help fund his new movie which is described as a thriller about blood addiction, but not, as people might assume, a vampire movie and certainly not one in the tradition of Blackula. In today's show, I'll be discussing with Spike the reasons why he had to turn to crowdfunding for the release of his new film, trying to uncover just what the new film is about without spoiling the plot, And also discussing his aforementioned version of *Old Boy*, which is released later this autumn. Before you hear my conversation with Spike, to give you a flavour of his latest film, here's an extract from the trailer for *Old Boy*.
1: Hello? Hello?
0: Hey, tell me why I'm in here. Look at me. No, 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 no. The body of Donna Hawthorne was discovered. The crime suspect, Joseph Doucette, the victim's former husband and father of the surviving child.
1: Your father's been missing for 20 years. I could somehow
0: bring him here do you think you could forgive him? I could try. I know you've already answered a question about this on your Kickstarter campaign page but I was wondering if you could just go into a little more detail about why you chose Kickstarter to fund this film. Is it as simple as that it's as hard as ever to find to fund independent cinema and this is the best tool for it in the present day?
2: Well you just answered the question. At this, <laughs> at this moment in time and space, Kickstarter was the best way for me to get the funds I need to shoot this indie film. Mm. This is a totally independent film and a major Hollywood studio is not gonna do a film like this. I'm not indicting them. You know, it doesn't a million, you know, they're not gonna do a a major Hollywood studio is not gonna do a film that costs a million and a half dollars. 5 are not gonna do it. Mm. You know, a million two hundred and fifty.
0: Do you think that's because of this increasing phenomenon that they just want these multi-hundred million dollar movies to come out every summer as their so-called tentpole movies? Well, it's just... not every summer.
2: It's, mm. it's blockbusters, which was really created by George Lucas with Star Wars and Steven Spielberg with Jaws, was usually for in America from Memorial Day in May to Labor Day in September. But now these blockbusters are coming out 12 months, 12 months a, a year.
0: Mm. And presumably, even if you had found uh, a studio that did want to fund this project, at least doing it this way, you have complete creative freedom and you don't have any interference whatsoever.
2: Yes, that's true. But again, I'm not trying to slam the studios There's just some films are going to make. And they were not going to make this film. It's just subject matter. And, you know, what we're trying to do uh, is not what they do. Mm.
0: I mean, I guess uh, Kickstarter really does have the potential to be a sea change in the way that films get funded from now on. And I suppose the success... Well, not just
2: films. I mean, let, let, let's clarify this. Mm. You get Adventures are on Kickstarter, cartoonists, poets, musicians, sculptors, playwrights, filmmakers. You can go on Kickstarter and do anything.
0: mm but I suppose just thinking of this kind of level of funding, a lot of Kickstarter campaigns are pretty small. But with the success of the recent Veronica Mars um, Kickstarter campaign, do you think that's also been a wake-up call for independent filmmakers who want to make things at around the million dollars? It was a wake-up call for me. <laughs> okay.
2: Because uh, not only Veronica Mars, but also Zach Braff, he did a film,
0: mm.
2: well, I think he's shooting now, We raised $3.5 million on Kickstarter.
0: Well, I guess to a certain extent, Kickstarter is a bit like it's replacing the old completion bond system because funders and fans of your work and of the project are pre-ordering the DVD even before the film gets made, which kind of suggests a level of trust between them, the audience, and you, the filmmaker.
2: Well, you got to build that up, though, mm. you know. Mm. That's something I've been building the last three decades.
0: The film that you're making is described as a movie about blood addiction, but not a vampire film. I know you don't want to talk about the plot, other than to describe it as a thriller, but is it safe to assume that there are some elements of vampire mythology that interest you in terms of the path that brought you to this project? Not really. Okay.
2: Because it has nothing to do with vampires. Mm -hmm. The 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 characters, they they can be seen in daylight. They all have fangs.
0: But then thinking of addiction as being kind of a reoccurring theme in your work, you've made films like Clockers and 25th Hour, which show the effects of addiction on characters, if not directly, then the after effects. And this seems to be a theme that you would keep returning to about once every decade.
2: Well, I don't know if it's once every decade, but I mean, let's be honest. Human beings have many addictions. Mm. Drugs, alcohol, sex, money, power, whatever you want to say. So it's... it's We get addicted to stuff. Hmm. Sugar, (laughs) caffeine, nicotine, all that stuff.
0: But I guess, you know, when you say blood addiction, people do think of vampirism. So I guess you're kind of unpicking that as a different approach to making a thriller.
2: I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. I'm not trying... I'm trying to give as little as possible about this film because I feel that for this film, to work best for the audience, they can not sit down in a dark theater and know everything that's going to happen. Hmm not compare myself to him, but Hitchcock didn't do that. You mean, He got a little taste in... I mean, you didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that today's audience, today's movie-going audience has been spoiled somewhat because of the trailers they see in movie theaters, where these trailers are made by the studios and they show you everything in the film. Mm. And, and some of these trailers, after seeing them, you don't even need, you don't even need to see the movie anymore. Because <laughs> you saw the trailer.
0: Mm. But it's interesting that on the Kickstarter page, you say that this is not anything like Blackula, which suggests that at the back of your mind there is this kind of negative connection between black exploitation films and vampire movies. Which means there has yet to be a great kind of African American style vampire movie, even if you're well, only. You like
2: *Vampire in Brooklyn* with Eddie Murphy.
0: <laughs> uh, I think it has its moments, but it is flawed in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even even Blade has his roots in black exploitation, which was a really cool film. You
2: think so? No, I think Blade
0: has his roots in just
2: that type of genre, not necessarily black exploitation film. Mm. And another thing, though, know, there were many different genres of black exploitation films, mm. and, and black was just one of those genres, which was a uh, uh, Dracula. Mm. And they also made a sequel, which is called Scream Black or Scream. <laughs>
0: You've made films in the past that are semi-autobiographical dramas set in Brooklyn. You've made more of comedies, um, thrillers that veer towards horror like Summer of Sam and presumably this new film as well. I was wondering if you like to move back and forth between genres to kind of keep filmmaking fresh for you and also possibly to try out new ideas that need a sort of certain genre hook in order to bring those ideas to the screen.
2: Well, I'm not really caught up in genres. I just try to tell stories. Mm. And I know that may sound pompous, but that's the truth. I don't sit down and say what genre I'm going to attack next. Hmm. What I do is I say, what story am I going to tell? Story for me comes before genre.
0: And I guess once you start writing the story, then maybe a kind of genre starts to suggest itself when you get near to its completion.
2: Well, that happens sometimes. That has happened.
0: Although perhaps making genre films brings an entirely different audience who you can reach out to who might not have seen one of your other films before.
2: Well, I think that's probably going to be the case in my new film, Old Boy, which opens November 27th here in the United States
0: of America. Because of its prior reputation in its Korean version?
2: Yes, sir. But a lot of people don't know that its first, I mean, the original source is a Japanese illustrated novel, the manga. Mm. People don't know that the Korean movie was based on that. I think that's the original screenplay. That's not true.
0: Doing a remake seems to be quite an unusual um, project for you. What led you to, to make Old Boy?
2: Well, we're not calling this a remake. We're no. calling this a reinterpretation. Okay. And I'll give you an example. You might have heard, uh, you know your films, right? Have you ever seen Julie Andrews sing My Favorite Things from Sound of Music? Yes, I have. When John Coltrane played that, did it sound the same?
0: No, not at all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You've heard many people sing My Funny Valentine. But when Miles Davis played it did, it, did it sound different?
0: Yeah, very different.
2: Again, but I'm not trying to say that I'm... Um, as great as Cold Train of Miles, but still, I'm trying to make an analogy.
0: Mm. Well, and it's interesting, because if you think of it in terms of songs, you've kept some of the same beats and rhythms in the sense that having seen the trailer, it looks like you've included the iconic scene where the lead character kills loads of bad guys using a hammer in a confined space, but then loads of Mm -hmm. the other imagery in the trailer is very different to what we've seen before.
2: Well, that uh, that was a challenge that Josh Brol and I accepted you know we did not want to do a a shot by shot remake of a great film we wanted to pay homage to it but at the same time make our own film
0: Mm. are you a a big fan of korean cinema or did you come across the manga
2: uh old boy came first Mm. then i saw the trilogy and then the manga but i'm not I, i cannot say i'm an expert on korean cinema
0: it's interesting because Pat Chanuk also made an unconventional vampire movie, Thirst. And I was wondering if you'd seen that, if only, you know, as a film that shows a very different No, I've not seen that. What's
2: the name of that film?
0: Thirst. It's about a priest who becomes a vampire. So again, it's as much no. with him grappling with his faith as it is about his blood addiction. No, I've not seen that. Okay. So. <laughs> In terms of keeping things fresh for you as a filmmaker, an important part of your life for the last 15 years has been teaching young filmmakers. Has that continued to be an inspirational part of your life, interacting with um, newcomers to the industry?
2: Oh, yes. You hit it on the nail there, right, sir. I mean, you, when you're around young people, they just make you feel younger. <laughs> and uh, very over the last 15 years where I've been teaching at the NYU Graduate from School, I've been very lucky that... Uh, just to be there. Um, I'm also artistic. the artistic director at the school. This is also where I went to school. Ernest Dickerson was my classmate, so was Ang Lee. Mm. So it's just great be able to go back and teach where I was a student one time.
0: Mm. What does being the artistic director involve? You
2: know, just help the dean mm. do his stuff and which way you want to go, stuff like that. Advice, vision, mm.
0: And it's interesting, you know, I mean, you're making this new film via funding from Kickstarter, presumably also be very useful for the students to watch, again, as a way for them oh, to... Oh, the students
2: were doing Kickstarter for I
0: was. Oh, really? Have they, have they been reasonably successful? Yes. Excellent.
2: But the reason why I never really paid too much attention because my students were were on Kickstarter for like $5,000, 10000 20000 mm. It wasn't until my teaching my teaching assistant, Mr. Julius Pryor, the third, he told me about Veronica Morris hmm. and Zach Braff. So that's when I had them examine Kickstarter.
0: And I guess both Kickstarter and the internet in general, as a way of disseminating films, is completely leveling the playing field that people can find the kind of narratives that they want to watch without, you know, sort of big advertising campaigns or studios dictating what should be made and what you might like.
2: Well, it has. Uh Technology has brought some type of democracy to mm. what you talked about, but you still got to make the films. Mm. You still got to make them, <laughs> despite all that. You still got to tell your story. Mm. Try to tell it. Try try tell it well too.
0: Do you think being primarily a city-based filmmaker has dictated the kind of narratives that you've shot? than, you know, say if you'd been based somewhere with less of an urban density.
2: Oh yeah, if I was, I wouldn't be Spike Lee then. <laughs> Probably would be a filmmaker like growing up in Milwaukee or uh, Idaho or some place like that?
0: Mm. And is that because you know, growing up in the environs of Greater New York City, there are just so many stories that present themselves to you on a daily basis.
2: Not not just stories, but you just exposure to culture. My mother was dragging me to Broadway plays. When I was six years old. Cool, taking me to
0: movies, and also, I suppose, uh, the kind of people that you meet in the city environment. There are so many different stories out there, so many different types of people, so many different backgrounds. That Yes,
2: very diverse, New York City.
0: Do you think also, because you've started making thrillers since Summer of Sam, the kind of stories that you find in the city environment lends itself to that kind of noir narrative, that kind of unreliable narrator that you find in thrillers?
2: I don't even know Summer of Sam is a thriller. <laughs> okay. You know, I, really, I really try to stay away from labeling my films, mm. per se. The label I will say is
0: that they're a Spike
2: Lee joint, because hmm. they're, they're 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 so different.
0: But I guess just you know thinking of kind of the the main characters in your movies, some of them are very trustworthy and very um, likable characters, while others you probably can't even trust the story that they're telling you or the environment that they're describing because you know they're untrustworthy because you know they're addicts or dealers and and so on.
2: Well. I don't really, I really know how to answer that question. Just all I'm doing is trying to tell stories. You know, I know it may sound mundane, but that's what I do as a filmmaker: Mm. tell stories.
0: Mm. We talked about new technology as a way of kind of facilitating film distribution. Has the advent of digital filmmaking also made things easier for you as a filmmaker? Because you don't have to deal with the huge setup of loading 35 millimeter film, of getting it processed, and so on. It makes the whole process so much quicker.
2: I wouldn't even talk about, you know, cameras. I mean, people making films on their phones. Yeah. So it was definitely has leveled the playing field.
0: Mm. And have you seen, you know, a huge range of technology in the classroom when you've been working with your students that, you know, they're happy to shoot films on their phones or compared to the very latest digital cameras?
2: Well, they don't know how to sync up dailies, that's for sure, because they've <laughs> never a lot of, they've never touched film before.
1: Mm.
2: And uh everything they've known, during that generation where they never use a still camera with film. You know, there's still cameras that are digital. Mm. But I I still love film. Yeah. And budget permitting, you know, I shoot film. Old Boy
0: was shot on film.
2: Oh, cool. 230, 235 millimeter perf.
0: Mm. And I suppose, you know, your good self and many other filmmakers out there are going to continue using celluloid as long as it's still available. And hopefully the fact that you're making films on yeah, it. Yeah,
2: but the numbers sir, the number is dwindling, though. Right. The number is dwindling. And the studios are, in, you know, trying to insist everything be shot digitally too, because they think it's cheaper. Mm.
0: So do you think you'll probably move back and forth depending on kind of yeah, like the, the budget? The budget, and, right?
2: Yeah, on the budget, it'll be cost prohibitive to shoot this film on on film. Mm.
0: Okay. Old Boy was filmed. I mean, it's interesting. I saw the new Paul Anderson film, The Master, not so long ago, and I think that's the last film shot on 70mm, because after that, there's no more stock and nowhere left to develop it. I mean, I guess this is just technology changing with the times.
2: They shot that film on 70mm?
0: I believe so. Yeah. With the campaign for this new movie, you've got all sorts of different incentives to help fund it. Sign books from your collection, limited edition paintings. You've already managed to find someone to buy the original flag from Malcolm X. Oh, well, we that...
2: had we had four. Right. Four. Uh, let me explain it for your listeners. Mm. If you remember the opening credit sequence of Malcolm X, begins with the uh, American flag full screen. Then the flag... Catches on fire, and is burnt to an X. Mm. There were four of those flags that were used for the for that sequence. I have one. Denzel had one, and we sold the other two.
0: Mm. I suppose it's reassuring, at least, that you know, if you have to let these things go, that have a personal attachment and kind of have a rich history to them, you know that the funds from selling them are actually going straight into the production of your new film.
2: Oh yeah, that's why they're there. It's going straight. To the production a new film, that's that's you know we, you're we're on Kickstarter we're all here we have it's not just me there's a lot of people working with me mm. to get this thing done
0: yeah. Although it's it's interesting that one of the most expensive incentives that you have is to invite someone to sit next to you in Madison Square Garden for uh, Knicks games. Um, yeah,
2: yeah Stephen Soderbergh was yeah. the
0: first one to buy one. So I mean that's a you know it's a. Obviously, a really good way of selling a chunk of money for the investment. And also, it means you can get support from people like Stephen to invest in the movie in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done otherwise.
2: Well, that was a complete surprise because, you know, we're not even really, you know, we know each other, we respect each other's work, we're not really close. So I was really honored and humbled when I found out he did buy it. He 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 did do that.
0: Hmm. Have you had much feedback from other people in the filmmaking community about what you're doing, that, you know, you're kind of breaking new ground for making a, a film outside of the system?
2: I'm getting very positive, reaction, very positive, from the indie world and the Hollywood Hollywood world too.
0: Although I guess the risk you are taking by um, selling uh, the seat next to you for, for $10,000 is that you might actually end up with a lunatic <laughs> sitting in the seat. I suppose that's something that no, you've taken there can be of. no
2: problems I'm having no problems with mass Square garden. That's not going to happen.
0: <laughs> Were any of the items that you've parted with had personal value for you, like your sneaker collection? Because those sort of things do obviously have kind of a resonance with our own personal history. Well, I got, stuff. I got, I got a ton. I got a
2: house full of sneakers. So that's <laughs> no problem. But here's the thing, though: people are paying good money for this. Yeah, it can be part of their life. They can hang the posters, the posters, all, or all, all, all autographed. They can hang out in their library, their den. Their home, so people are paying a pleasure, good money, mm. help us get this film made, and they're getting something returned. So I think that it is a great thing.
0: Yeah, and it's the most kind of personal connection a person can get in knowing that actually they've helped a film get made, which is a real yeah. connection between the filmmaker and the audience.
2: That's why this whole thing of crowdfunding is so great.
0: Mm. So what's the, assuming, and hopefully uh, your f- project will get funded within the next week, what sort of timescale are you looking at? Oh, it's
2: going to happen, sir. It's going to happen. We went, we went over a we million dollars a day. Fantastic. I mean, seven days left to get the additional
0: $250,000. Oh, that seems like a good bet. <laughs> and then what sort of timescale are you looking at after that in order to start shooting? And Oh, um... we hope
2: to start shooting in November.
0: Right. And winter in New York City does add a certain kind of aesthetic to the film that you're making.
2: Well, we hope it's not too cold. <laughs> more like hopefully, be fall weather.
0: Mm. Okay, it's been brilliant to uh, talk to you, and um, we all look forward to the the completed film.
2: And uh, people, Kickstarter.com, help us out over there in the UK. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Brilliant. Bye. The Kickstarter campaign for Spike Lee's new film ends in the wee hours on the 21st of August, and as of the recording of this introduction, still needs over $100,000 to be finalised. To take part in this exciting project, there are a variety of incentives available from the website, including various books, such as The Making of School Days and Mo' Better Blues, posters from Red Hook Summer, Crooklyn and Clockers signed sneakers from Spike's own collection, tickets to the world premiere of the new film in cities such as LA, New York and Chicago, T-shirts, old boy umbrellas and even, as I mentioned in the interview, the chance to sit next to Spike at one of the games of his favourite team, the Knicks. To find out about all the above, please go to tinyurl.com-spike-lee-kickstarter. And while Spike is making his new movie, his most recent film, Old Boy, will be released in America in November, and hopefully in the UK soon after. Speaking of Kickstarter, Corbin Wilkin, the winner of the 2012 Jonathan Cape Observer Short Story Competition, is launching a fundraiser campaign to complete his graphic novel, Breaker's End. As ever, there are various pledges depending on how much you want to invest in the project starting off at £10 for a printed edition of the comic, due in September, for £20, a copy of the first edition with an original sketch of one of the characters inside the cover, going up to £200 where you can hire the artist himself to spend the day drawing yourself, your family, your friends, your pets, and anything else you might want to keep at the end of the day. To find the Kickstarter campaign for Breakers End, please go to tinyurl.com stroke breakersend. That's B-R-E-A-K-E-R-S-E-N-D. Today's episode of I'm Ready for My Close-Up has been a special one-off edition, and the regular programme will return in September. In the meantime, there are a variety of festivals taking place across the UK to entertain fans of cinema and comics. Taking place now is the Edinburgh Book Festival, with a variety of guests over the following weeks, including Roddy Doyle, Carol Ann Duffy, Ian Rankin, David Almond, Frank Hottrell boyce Roddy Doyle, Keris Matthews, and many more. And this year the festival has a special comics programme taking place over the August Bank holiday weekend called Stripped. Guests include Joe Sacco, Chris Ware, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, Hannah Berry, and many more. And you can find more information at Edbookfest.co.uk and I'm hoping to interview a couple of the writers who will be appearing at the Ed Fest in a special episode of Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's podcast, which you can hear at sci-fi-london.com-podcast sometime over the next week. Another comic book event taking place over the August Bank holiday weekend, the 24th and 25th, which is a bit more convenient for people living in the lower half of Britain, is Caption, the yearly Oxford small press and self-publishing festival. Guests at this year's Caption include Ryan Hughes, a graphic designer most recently known for creating the logos of modern X-Men and Batman comics, but as a comic book artist in his own right, in the 90s, illustrated a memorable run on Dan Dare. Andrzej Klamowski, a Polish film poster designer, and more recently a graphic novelist, will also be in attendance with his partner Danusia Schabel, who together have illustrated adaptations of Stanislaw Lem's Robot, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and The Master and Margarita, Paul Collicut, the writer and illustrator of the recent graphic novel The Murder Mile, Ian Rakoff, one-time writer of The Prisoner, turned comics historian for the Victoria and Albert Museum, Hannah Eaton, a runner-up in the First Fictions graphic novel competition a couple of years ago, whose book Naming Monsters has just seen print, John Aggs, the illustrator of Philip Pullman's The Adventures of John Blake for the DFC, and many more. Throughout the weekend, there are various panels on such subjects as steampunk and cyberpunk comics, the legacy of 2000 AD, comic book design, and comics and education, as well as workshops run by Al Davison and Vicky Stonebridge. Caption takes place at the East Oxford Community Centre on the 24th and 25th of August, and the cost of a ticket for the weekend is a very reasonable £10. More information at caption.org. If your interest runs more towards horror films, Fright Fest is also taking place over the August Bank holiday, with premieres of films such as The Dead 2 India, Curse of Chucky, I Spit on Your Grave 2, Hatchet 3, R.I.P.D., Bring Me the Head of Machine Gun Woman, and many more. For more information about Frightfest, please go to frightfest.co.uk. Before all these events, there's also a one-off Comica Festival conversation taking place at Foyles on Charing Cross Road, in which acclaimed graphic novelist Rutu Modan will be in conversation with Hannah Berry, author of Britain and Brew Lightly and Adam Time. They're going to be discussing The Property, the first full-length graphic novel from Rutu, since the award-winning Exit Wounds. That's taking place on Wednesday, August the 21st, and doors open at 6.15 for a 6.30 start. More information at comicafestival.com. Today's episode of I'm Ready for My Close-Up is the last of mine as producer, although I hope to return to the programme as an occasional contributor over the autumn. The other show on Resonance FM that I'm the regular presenter of is Panel Borders, which is the UK's only weekly radio show about comics, and that programme will be returning in the early autumn with a new series including guests Bill Sienkiewicz, David Mack, John Wagner, film director Nick Rogue, Jonathan Cape Observer short story winner Stephen Collins, and many more. I'd like to thank the various people who have helped contribute to the programme since the start of this year, including Virginie Selavy, editor of Electric Sheep magazine, and Cameron Payne, manager of the radio studio at the University of Brighton. Cameron, along with Paul McGinn, recorded the interview in today's episode, and it was introduced and edited by Alex Fitch. A podcast of today's episode, along with all of my previous contributions to the show, Can be found at www.electricsheepmagazine.com, stroke events, and is a panel borders production. There'll be a new series of I'm Ready for My Close Up in the Autumn, and until then, I hope all our listeners have a brilliant summer. Thanks for listening. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24 7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.